The reading is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. Your faith and hope are in God. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be here again. Thank you for your warm welcome, David. It's uh, nice to feel wanted. <laughs> Some of the songs we've been singing are very familiar to me. Um, same sort of stuff that we do at St Pancras in Chichester, which is where I normally am if I'm not somewhere else doing stuff. Uh, I noticed that quite a few people were doing the actions to the last one. Uh, I don't normally do the actions. I'm one of those people. I can either sing or I can do the actions. I can't do the both. Can't do two things together. It's a bit like patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time. I, I can't do it. <laughs> but uh, it's good to be here. Let's bow our heads in prayer for a moment. Lord Jesus Christ, give us eyes to see you, hearts to love you, and lives to live for you. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Begin with the first verse from today's reading from 1 Peter. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Not a terribly promising start in terms of sermon feel-good factor, I think. Uh, if you really want to hack off um, progressive and um, liberal Christians and theologians, just talk about judgment. <laughs> in 1971, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story here. In 1971, I was a very, very new, green and wet behind the ears curate. And I was also pretty naive as well. 
And I remember going to a minister's fraternal meeting in Guildford, uh, which was uh, a very, very big influence on me in many ways. David Pawson, who was the Baptist minister in Guildford at that time, spoke about the Christian gospel being bad news before it was good news. And by this, of course, he meant uh, the Bible teaching uh, that everybody is a sinner. We're born that way, and sin grows and develops as we get older. Civilization and a good upbringing can conceal this to some extent, but our basic inclination is to do things that are wrong rather than things that are right. We deny God, or if we don't actually deny him, we ignore him, and consider our way is best. The Bible teaches that God is holy and is unable to have anything to do with anything that is to do with sin. So as we are, God can't have anything to do with us. We'll be excluded from heaven. As the Bible puts it, we'll not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news of the gospel, that we are sinners and that we're under God's judgment. But the good news comes after that. Jesus is a saviour, and you know why they call him saviour? Because he saves you. <laughs> the good news is that God loves us anyway, in spite of our sin. And he sent Jesus to live among us and to die for us, bearing the weight of our punishment uh, of sin on himself at the cross. When we're sorry for our sin uh, and we come to him in trust and faith, uh, in what he did for us, then the sin barrier that cuts us off from God's uh, loving presence is removed, and we're free to have fellowship with the God who made us. And that turns out to be a whole new life, serving God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It transforms us. Now, none of this was actually news to me, uh, because after all, I'd been converted at the age of 21, and uh, at a large evangelical church in Gillingham in Kent, and I'd spent the last three years at an evangelical vicar factory. <laughs> and that was what the Christian faith was, uh, as far as I was concerned. It was what it was all about. So I was completely gobsmacked when some of the ministers um, became quite angry with David Pawson uh, as he uh, progressed with his talk. And it seemed that what they objected to most was any suggestion that anyone would be judged and found unfit to enter heaven. I was never quite sure whether they didn't believe in sin or whether God didn't mind it. But uh, any idea of separation was quite anathema to them. Since then, I've come across quite a variety of viewpoints some people don't seem to believe in sin, or if they do, it doesn't matter very much, and it can be outweighed by the good that we may do in life. Some don't believe in the existence of hell, or if they do believe in it, it's empty. And when I was a curate in Hereford, one cathedral canon I met there said that he believed that everybody would wind up in heaven. And if anyone didn't make it, he would consider that to mean that Jesus' death on the cross was a failure. So, some different viewpoints that uh, rather surprised me at the time. But all that was back in the 1970s. But actually, not very much has changed in the last 40 years. The idea of judgment is still frowned upon in many church circles. 
Even in the secular world, um, some schools um, have uh, a policy which does away with sports days or any competitive um, idea of sports days so that nobody wins or loses and everyone's effort is to be celebrated. Quite nice in a way, I suppose, but it's not a brilliant preparation for the real world because even snowflakes will have to discover that the life, uh, the great game of life, there are always going to be winners and losers. The buzzwords and phrases of the 21st century tend to be about affirmation, radical inclusion, acceptance, and discovering who you really are. These words, of course, have their place, but before that must come an acknowledgement of our own sin, our own repentance towards God, and our acceptance of Jesus, our only Saviour, who is the Lord we serve. Without that, the church won't be much more than a club for like-minded religious people. A bit like another meeting I read about um, in the paper um, a couple of weeks ago. This is what Giles Fraser wrote. We meet twice monthly on Sundays for inspirational events which combine inspiring talks, um, sing-along pop songs, and a touch of mindfulness, all followed by tea and cake. Thus reads the blurb for the Sunday Assembly, an evangelical-style church for people who don't believe in God and obviously don't want to worship him either. And it was founded, apparently, in 2013 by a couple of comedians, Sanderson Jones and Pippa Evans, and achieved initial success with large congregations and an international program of church planting. You can Google it and read about it if you're interested. <laughs> but the stark reality is that we only truly discover who we are and what we uh, exist for when we've turned away from our sin and handed over our life to Jesus as our saviour and are then trying to serve him as our Lord. But living for Christ in today's world is not easy. If we're faithful to God's word, we'll find that we're swimming against the tide. I always remember years ago when I worked in London, I had to go to uh, uh, get off at London Bridge Station and then walk across um, London Bridge into the city. Uh, or, or rather, no, no, that was wrong. I had to go to Cannon Street, then walk back over London Bridge to get a train to Croydon um, when I was working for Nest the Nestle Company. And everybody was going the other way. And it was very difficult not to be swept along by the crowd. It's like that being a Christian today. We're swimming against the tide. We may not be popular either. We may find that we're described as a bigot or a hater and uh, someone who is living on the wrong side of history. But don't worry too much about that. The Bible warns us to expect that kind of thing. The Bible also tells us to live here in our godless world as though we were foreigners. And in a sense, of course, we are foreigners here because Paul writes that our citizenship is in heaven. Foreigners are often regarded with suspicion simply because they're different. They may look different, have a different language, different customs, and different values. And as Christians, too, we are called upon to be different and to try to share the good news of Jesus and influence society for good. Jesus called it being salt and light 
in a decaying and dark world. If we are different with different standards and values from the world around us, it will be a challenge, which sometimes brings hostility. The temptation is to withdraw from the world and try to cut ourselves off uh, from the world and its influences. There used to be a fourth century monk who took this idea to extremes. You may have heard of him. Um, Simeon Stylites lived on a platform at the top of a pole for 37 years. <laughs> and that was near Aleppo in Syria. And his idea was that he wanted to escape from the world's influence. I don't believe we should withdraw from the world. If there are things in society or government that you don't like, write to your MP to try and influence society in a Christian way. I write to Gillian Keegan quite regularly, yeah, and uh, I don't often get much of a response. Usually an automated email is, uh, is, is usual. But uh, public opinion is taken notice of, and it all helps. We're reminded of what we are. We were not redeemed with valuable stuff from the world around us. But because Jesus died for us and shed his blood for us, that's the basis of our redemption. And Peter reminds us again just who Jesus is. From verse 19 onwards, he was a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. So writes Peter. This is the Jesus who broke into our world and transformed us. One of the results of this, Peter tells us, is that we live our lives in reverent fear of God. That doesn't mean we should be afraid. God's love throws out fear, but we should be in awe and treat God with awe and reverence. I remember years ago when I first became a Christian, going into a Christian home, and there were some framed words on the wall. You may have seen them. And it says this, Christ is the head of this home, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And it made quite an impression on me. If we, and if we remember that, it creates a right kind of reverence, I believe. I don't know if you've noticed it in the Christian press, but Norwich and Rochester cathedrals have stirred up something of a hornet's nest in the last uh, few weeks. Norwich has installed a full-sized helter-skelter in the nave, and Rochester has got a crazy golf course inside the cathedral. And there have been some odd headlines in some of the papers, like Holy in One and Fairway to Heaven. <laughs> There's been a lot of criticism along, with, uh, along the lines of it being sacrilegious and an act of desecration of God's house. Now, I've got a certain sympathy with both sides of the arguments. I think that uh, the cathedral um, authorities have done it with the best of motives to try and get people in, uh, who would otherwise never come into a church inside. I think there are better ways of actually doing that. Uh, and uh, what they've done is questionable. But the question arises too, what is it that they might encounter 
when they have come inside the cathedral, uh, apart from a slide or some mini-golf. Those who see such things as desecration of a holy space are really basing their view on an Old Testament understanding of religious, religious buildings, I think, uh, where the Jerusalem temple was seen as the dwelling place of God. And in fact, the medieval concept of church buildings owes more to the Old Testament temple than it does to the New Testament, with the nave, where ordinary people um, congregate, the chancel, where people who were a bit holier went, like clergy, <laughs> and the sanctuary where the altar was, where bread and wine were turned into the body of Christ. In fact, the New Testament doesn't have a theology of church buildings because there weren't any. <laughs> but what it does say is that the Christian's body is a temple, and as such, we should treat it appropriately. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is why we should treat our bodies with reverence, because God is within us in a much more significant way than in any church building. And the context of Paul's writing about this is sexual immorality. There were some church members in New Testament times who had a very mistaken viewpoint of um, spirituality. They considered that the only thing that mattered was spiritual and spirit, and that anything which was physical and made of physical matter was of not very much importance. And since our body is composed of matter, it followed in their minds that what we did with our body was of no consequence. If we felt like being a pig and uh, eating a lot of food or getting drunk or going with a prostitute, it really didn't matter. And that's why Paul wrote as he did, saying it jolly well does matter. <laughs> we are to treat our bodies with the right kind of reverence. Paul continue, uh, Peter continued in our passage, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that we were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Remember, says Paul, that you are not your own. You were bought with a price, the price that Jesus paid when he shed his blood for you on the cross. In our passage, Peter writes, too, that we should care deeply for our fellow Christians. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. He writes about obeying the truth. What else can the truth be but the truth of the gospel? brought to us through the word of God, the scriptures. It's through the Bible that we believe and become Christians by being born again, he says. Verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The picture here is that of the seed of God's word, 
taking root in our lives and producing fruit, just as in Jesus' parable of the sower. Sometimes I've, I've sown some seeds in my garden at home in Chichester, and everything grows well, and all the seeds grow. But at other times, I've sown the seed and nothing happens. I try my best to have the conditions right, but not a sausage. Nothing comes up. I can only assume that the seeds were dead. But the seed of God's word is not like that. It's living and imperishable, Peter says. There have been experiments done with seeds um, to show, uh, that show under very unusual conditions, some seeds can remain viable for more than 100 years. Some people once reckoned that seeds from the, uh, uh, from the Pharaoh's tombs, thousands of years old, would grow. But uh, I think the Mythbusters uh, have proved that that uh, is not actually true. But the seed of God's word lives forever. The last verses from our passage sound rather like a part of Isaiah 40 and Psalm 103. And part of those words are used in the funeral service in the committal prayers. All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. It really does emphasize, doesn't it, that plants and flowers are just like us. But God's word lasts forever. And it's through that living word that we too will survive death and live forever in the presence of the Lord himself. If we trust him, then we're certainly on the right side of history. Let's bow our heads in prayer now for a few moments.